0: Tonight, war crimes in Ukraine. The U.S. now officially accusing Vladimir Putin of violating international law. But what does that really mean? President Biden is in Europe tonight. Will U.S. troops be headed there next? And drawing lines and choosing sides, which countries are willing to back Ukraine and which countries are not? The answer might surprise you. Also ahead, if you are a super wealthy Russian with a super fancy yacht, you can move it or you can lose it. And that applies to the super wealthiest Russian of all. We're looking at you, Vladimir Putin. Tonight, eye-popping photos of what the Russian leader stands to lose if his own floating pleasure palace gets seized. And then gas is break- breaking your bank. We're all feeling it. But what makes way for the man who is going to fill up your tank to the tune of a million dollars? It is on him, and it's happening tomorrow. He joins us tonight on Banfield. Welcome to Banfield. I'm Brian Enton in for Ashley tonight. The stakes could not be higher for President Biden and the US tonight. The president is in Europe now to meet with his fellow NATO leaders about the rapidly deteriorating situation in Ukraine and there is a lot for them to discuss. Did Russia commit war crimes? What will NATO do if they did? And would Vladimir Putin actually consider using nuclear weapons to retaliate? A lot of unanswered questions, but the most important question right now might be this. Who is really winning the war in Ukraine? Depending on the video you've seen and the reports you've heard, you may have made up your mind about it, but it's a tougher question to answer than you might think. On one side, there were 1,200 missiles launched by the Russians just today alone. We've seen the horrible devastation across the country, particularly in the city of Mariupol, which has been turned into an ash field by Russian forces. The pictures are unbelievable. Tonight, there are more than 100,000 people trapped there, many of them hiding underground with no food, no water, and no electricity. There's also no way for them to communicate with anyone outside the city. Human rights groups say thousands of people were likely killed in Marpol, and we've, and we've seen several disturbing photos like this of citizens digging graves. Outside the cities, Russian troops have allegedly been planting landmines as they prepare for an extended stay in the country. There's also worries an inpatient Putin could use chemical or biological weapons in Ukraine, maybe even nuclear weapons. Here's Chris- Christine Amanpour asking Dmitry Peskov, Putin's right-hand man and spokesperson, about the chances of Putin using nukes.
1: President Putin said that if anybody tries to stop him, very bad
2: things will happen. And I want to know whether you are convinced or confident that your boss will not use that option.
3: Well, we have a concept of uh, domestic security and, uh, well, it's public, you can read all the reasons for nuclear uh, arms to be used. So if it is an ex- existential st- threat for our country, then it can be used in accordance with our concept.
0: It seems like an unthinkable option, but not impossible, especially since there's another version of the war where things are not looking good for Russia at all. Ukrainian commanders say they've been able to cut off Russia's supply chain, and Russian forces only have three days left of food, fuel, and ammunition. The Ukrainians also say Russia has lost thousands of its troops during the conflict. One estimate puts it at 10% of Russia's total force. Some media outlets have shared videos of a fleet of buses nicknamed ghost buses, which have been spotted traveling from Ukraine into Russia. Some speculate that they could be transporting the bodies of fallen Russian soldiers, a claim that News Nation at this point has not confirmed. And it's not just nameless soldiers that Russia has lost. Some reports say at least 15 of Russia's top military leaders have died during the invasion of Ukraine, the most since World War II. Those numbers include Captain Andrei Polis, seen in the photograph here, being carried uh, at his funeral. He was a deputy commander of Russia's Black Sea field, uh, Fleet, and he was killed in Maripol. This comes as Russia's defense minister, Sergei Sogu, has not been seen for 12 days. The official word uh, is he had heart problems, but we just don't even know if that's true. And Russian economist Antoly Chubais Putin's official representative with several international organizations, has reportedly left Russia with no intention to return. He is the first senior official to quit since Russia invaded Ukraine a month ago. Two very different versions of the war. Tonight we are going to do our best to sift through the mountain of reports and accusations coming in from Ukraine we are trying to get to the truth. I am joined by News Nation's Robert Sherman. He is in Warsaw, uh, Poland tonight. He has been in Ukraine. He has been on top of it all along. Robert, first of all, uh, the U.S. formally declaring that Russia committed war, war crimes during the invasion. Have they given any specific evidence of that? What have we seen uh, that shows that's true?
2: Well, Brian, a lot of the evidence that they're going with and a lot of the reasons that they're using to make that formal declaration have been put out into the public. Some of the most gruesome images that we've seen of this war, the bombing of the maternity hospital in Mariupol is an example, the bombing of the theater in Mariupol with the words children written outside of it were both cited uh, in that uh, a formal declaration. Then there was it, the list went on, but it effectively said that there seems to be a continuous continuous, uh, indiscriminate effort in order to bomb regions and areas in these cities where it is clear that people are living, apartment buildings, homes, and things of that nature. So that's the reasoning that the United States is using in order to declare uh, the, and, and allege that Russia is guilty of committing war crimes. Uh, but this, and this just came out today, but you have seen this uh, and the, the, the documentation is online and it's worth taking a look at for yourself. But it, it is very clear that a lot of what we've seen is what they're going off of as well.
0: Yeah. And it seems, I mean, we, we've literally seen the evidence uh, every day. You are in Poland right now. That is a NATO country. Uh, President Biden has said over and over again that he will protect every single inch of NATO. I know you've been speaking with govern- government officials uh, in Poland. What are they saying right now? They're close to Ukraine. Do they feel protected?
2: Well, they definitely feel the tension in the air. They definitely feel a bit more nervous than they did uh, a month and a half ago uh, when Russian forces were two countries removed from them and not just the next-door neighbors over in Ukraine. That's where Russian forces are right now. Uh, so they, most everyone does admit that, th- that the situation in Ukraine is making them a bit more nervous. Uh, that being said... Uh, we have heard cautious optimism that NATO will come to their aid. Uh, we did speak with the mayor of Warsaw today about this very topic. Listen to what he had to say earlier.
0: I think that uh, NATO and the United States of America should make a decision to strengthen the eastern f- uh, flank uh even uh, even more and send us more troops that are not going to be here only on a rotation basis but they're going to uh, be um here permanently of course we also need more uh, uh rockets and patriot uh, missile defense system uh because there is a certain number of batteries that we need to to be able to defend ourselves effectively so yes there is a need for 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 a greater engagement
2: so as we have been reporting, there are U.S. and NATO troops on the ground here in Poland. And we've seen uh, the anti-air uh, defense missile systems. We've seen the Blackhawks. We've seen the Humvees with our own eyes. They've been out in the open. Uh, but local officials calling for more of that uh, so that they feel a bit more safe here. So that's the reality of the situation is that people are worried should Ukraine fall where does Russia go next? People here are afraid that Poland could be the next target. Uh, so people are hoping uh, that NATO really comes to their aid, and they, they think that they will. Uh, but that's what they're really looking for the president to say when he comes here, is, is that he intends to truly defend every inch uh, of NATO territory, and not just the United States, but all NATO partners collectively.
0: Yeah, it makes sense that they would would be worried. And obviously, they're going to be hanging on uh, every word uh, of President Biden's speech uh, while, while he is in Europe. One thing that I find myself thinking about every day, and it's something I asked you last time I spoke to you, um, is there really seems to be a disconnect sometimes. We see the images of Russia coming in and, and what appears to be just leveling uh, cities uh, in Ukraine. But then we hear from the Ukrainians that they're holding on to all of the major cities. Do we have a good sense right now, Robert, who is actually winning? the war
2: well it's very hard to say brian because you also have to look at first of all you know what d- taking out of the equation the number of casualties or things of that nature you also have to remember that russia is coming into this fight with a much larger military than the ukrainians have uh, so the proportions get skewed in that case that being said it, it is amazing uh the ukrainians claim a certain number of Russian soldiers killed and the Russians come back and say that they've only lost a tenth of that. Uh, there is a fog of war here in which that it is very hard to know both of these sides exactly how many losses they're taking or how many casualties they've inflicted, but it is also to their benefit to not be as forthright uh, as we would all like them to be when it comes to those numbers. It's in the Ukrainians' best interest in order to say that they have killed off more Russian soldiers than they actually have. Uh, in order to bolster morale of their troops and their people and to keep the fight going and to keep hope alive. That doesn't necessarily mean that they have done that, but it is in their interest to do that. And conversely, it is in Russia's best interest in order to diminish the number of losses that they've taken so that the war remains uh, feasible and somewhat popular back in Moscow and Russia itself. Uh, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing it, but it is quite possible. What we do know is, is that the numbers that both sides are claiming are so far apart from one another that at least somebody is not being entirely truthful with their numbers. Uh, so it, it is very hard to say, uh, but it, it, it is a, the fog of war and it is also the war of information that both sides are trying to win.
0: Yeah, it's certainly interesting following it every day closely and then even you being over there, how difficult it is uh, to keep track uh, of who, who is actually winning at this point. Robert Sherman, thank you so much. Uh, please stay safe over there. Okay, moving on. We just got a video message in uh, just a little while ago from Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. During part of the message, he speaks in English and he actually addresses the members of NATO. I'll uh, listen to this new message.
3: The war of Russia is not only the war against Ukraine. Its meaning is much wider. Russia started the war against freedom as it is. This is only the beginning for Russia on the Ukrainian land. Russia is trying to defeat the freedom of all people in Europe, of all the people in the world. It tries to show that only crude and cruel force matters. It tries to show that people do not matter as well as everything else that make us people. That's the reason we all must stop Russia. The world must stop the war. I thank everyone who acts in support of Ukraine, in support of freedom. But the war continues.
0: That message comes as President Biden and his team have arrived in Europe. You see him there for talks with other NATO countries. There are reports that we could see more sanctions against Russian interests and possibly even U.S. troops Heading to the Ukraine border. News Nation's Kelly Meyer is in Washington. She has been talking to her sources all day. Uh, Kelly, the timing of this is certainly interesting. President Biden now in Europe. Uh, wh- what can we expect from, from his visit? Is this really just a photo op uh, or are we expecting something more to happen?
4: Well, and just to say on that video you just played, it makes me think of the message he just delivered here on Capitol Hill just a week ago today. And in that message, also uh, speaking in English uh, directed towards President Biden, this message you just heard heard tonight. Uh, part of that, as you played, in English, speaking directly again to the U.S. and NATO allies to do something here. Uh, and it looks as though this meeting will have some teeth to it. They are expected to issue, uh, hit Moscow with some new sanctions, ramp up military forces along the eastern flank near Ukraine. And Biden will pledge to do more to help with the refugee crisis. Biden will be meeting with the leaders from NATO, the G7 and the European Council. And we expect to hear from Biden himself during a press conference tomorrow. So we are expected to hear uh, some more, uh, again, sanctions tomorrow and more action that they may be taking. But whether or not it meets exactly what the president of Ukraine is calling for just remains to be seen if it will be enough.
0: What is the consensus among the NATO members? We've heard specifically from Poland. Do they want Biden to be more aggressive? Is that the message that they're going to be giving him over the next day?
4: Well, from the White House perspective here, they say it's Biden that was pushing to have this meeting, to go there in, in person and to push for more action here. But you also see this rift between the U.S. and Poland, as Poland wanted to do more to send those fighter jets to Ukraine, but first sending them to the U.S. airbase in Germany and then on to Ukraine. That plan was nixed by the U.S., also the U.S. not for a no-fly zone over Ukraine, while some NATO members like Estonia, Slovenia, and Lithuania are calling for it. So the group tomorrow is going to have to decide how to bridge some of these divides and try to show as as one what they are doing here, because they are trying to show a unified front against Vladimir Putin. So they're going to be very careful with how they address these next steps in the days to come.
0: And Kelly, today the U.S. officially accused Russia of war crimes. One thing I don't think people realize is that the U.S. can say that, uh, but there's also a process that has to happen. It's almost like a legal proceeding. Um, can you explain? I mean, what happens next? The accusation has has been made, but but how do they actually prove it?
4: That's right. And will it be in time to save so many in Ukraine? These investigations already started, really, and this could take months, even years. And Putin, in the end may not even face trial, and if he uh, never leaves Russia, they can't just go in and get him. So they face challenges both on proving Russia intentionally targeted civilians and hitting Putin with this as well. And the U.S. says they are going to continue to share any information they collect and share that they, they say they are, quote, committed to pursuing accountability using every tool available, including Criminal prosecutions, and then just to add to this, this just adds to this uh, relationship to uh, U.S. and Russia tonight. Russia retaliating against Washington, expelling U.S. diplomats after the U.S. expelled 12 Russian diplomats from Moscow's mission in the in New York. Uh, the State Department sharing a statement with us, confirming they received a list of diplomats declared persona non grata, meaning unwelcome. A State Department spokesperson saying, "quote This is Russia's latest unhelpful and unproductive step in our bilateral." Relationships. So all of this going together from uh, the U.S. C- uh, calling out these war crimes to uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Russia as they try to find a diplomatic diplomatic off ramp and whether or not these war crimes will ever come to anything in time uh, to save Ukraine here.
0: Kelly Meyer, thank you. We'll all be watching very closely. I know you will be over the next day with President Biden uh, in Europe right now. I want to talk more about what the next steps in this conflict could be, especially if Putin does do the unthinkable, it's hard to even imagine using chemical uh, or nuclear weapons. I'm joined by Congressman Steve Russell. He represented Oklahoma from 2015 to 2019. He was also a Lieutenant Colonel uh, in the US Army who played a significant role in the capture of Saddam Hussein. Congressman, thanks for being here. I wanna start uh, with President Biden uh, in Europe since he just landed there a short time ago. What are you expecting from this visit? Do you think it'll really make a difference in what we're seeing with the war? Well,
5: it does make a difference that he's showing leadership. Uh, he's meeting with all of the NATO countries. Uh, face-to-face conversation is always better. Uh, I think they're looking for reassurance and commitment. Uh, they've invoked Article Five to support us, uh, but then they also saw President Biden uh, with the pullout from Afghanistan. So they they want to know that there's a commitment here. I think the president can can give that assurance. Uh, he is leading, uh, he is uh, rallying many of the NATO uh, countries, so I think they're going to be looking for reassurance and also commitment on our part.
0: One thing that I struggle with, Congressman, and I think a lot of Americans do with all the information that we get, the videos, we're inundated with videos every day uh, from the war, especially on social media, is who's actually winning. I mean, do you have a feel for it uh, based on what you're seeing? Yeah,
5: uh, when you're digging trenches, that's not a good offensive strategy. Um, I would say Ukraine has already exceeded uh, way beyond anything that Russia imagined. Uh, the, other than Kherson, uh, the only city that has fallen, uh, they have not taken any of their objectives. Uh, they should have uh, taken all of these objectives uh, even weeks ago in their mind and in their planning. Uh, they had imagined that they would be uh, in the full eastern half of Ukraine in control to the Dnieper River. Uh, they've not uh, achieved really any of that. Uh, the Air Force uh, is still intact in Ukraine. The air defense systems uh, are absolutely knocking down uh, scores of helicopters and uh, jets. Thousands of armored vehicles have uh, been destroyed, uh, literally uh, 2,500 tanks. Uh, those are the figures uh, that are being presented. And given the weapons systems that they're employing they're quite believable
0: it, yeah it sounds like like you believe the ukrainians are winning and based on what's been happening on the ground it certainly appears that way but i think one thing that's really scary is to think about if the russians up their game specifically when it comes to nukes and, and chemical warfare if they could keep losing on the ground uh, do you think it could come to that well, we've seen uh, kind of what they're doing with
5: the uh, level the city strategies. Uh, we've seen that, uh, obviously, in Grozny. We've seen it in Aleppo. Uh, we shouldn't be shocked, uh, although it does anger us. Uh, but it has been the way that they've operated. Uh, but we've not seen widespread chemical music, uh, munitions employed in Syria. I, I don't think that they will be uh, employed. That needs to be something that is a red line discussion at the NATO uh, conference. Uh, I think that uh, we also see that the nuclear posture. No nation that possesses nukes is ever going to convey anything but ambiguity and uh, uncertainty in how they would employ them. That that's the norm.
0: You mentioned red line. Do you? What do you think the red line is with the U.S.? I mean, what line does Russia have to cross for the U.S. to say, you know what? That's it. Uh, we're going in.
5: I think that we, uh, given the technological advances uh, that we're seeing now, uh, 22 years into this century, uh, no major powers have come to blows. Uh, we, we are seeing that. We shouldn't be shocked uh, that it's happening. We should be shocked it's taken this long. But now we have digital capabilities. Uh, we have cyber attack possibilities where infrastructure can uh, be degraded, where public works uh, can be shut off, uh, where safety uh, uh, mechanisms can... You, you could see literally uh, hundreds or even thousands of people placed at risk and die if these cyber attacks are done. And I think that that's got to be a red line where Europe and uh, the so United he, States, they say cyber attack on our countries. That's an act of war. Uh, that needs to be some strong so, language to protect our citizens.
0: So even putting nukes and chemical warfare aside, you're saying even cyber attacks you, you think should be enough, could be enough for us to get more involved.
5: I think it has to. Uh, just imagine this scenario that if, if we are uh, have ambiguity and we don't uh, say, you know, what we would do or not. And then they take uh, out uh, our grids, our public works, uh, reroute trains, uh, aircraft, uh, you know, with our uh, navigation systems, with the FAA or whatever it might be. We're talking there could be great risk of life. And so we have to understand how digitally intertwined we are uh, and how vulnerable that those things could be. President Biden uh, sent out some pre-announcements on it. So obviously they're acting on intelligence that they're seeing on that and they're trying to warn companies and they're trying to warn Americans uh, about that to try to be more secure. And we certainly need to do that. And I think that that has to be given serious discussion uh, in the NATO conference.
0: No one right now, Congressman, obviously knows exactly what is going on in, in Putin's head. I know you've dealt with people somewhat like him. Some people are saying he, he may feel like he's backed into a corner right now. Um, what do you think he does next? I mean, what do you think is playing out in his mind right now?
5: Well, he wants control uh, of the former Soviet empire. Uh, we've seen it. Uh, he's stated it. He's been pretty clear since 1999. Uh, he was even more clear in 2006. He began to act on it in 2008 uh, with the Republic of Georgia. Uh, we see it in Transnistria with Moldova. Uh, we've seen it with the Baltic states, although they became NATO members rather quickly. So that thwarted that effort. He wants all of that, what he calls the near abroad, uh, restored to the bad old days of the Soviet Empire. That's his goal in terms of counsel that he would receive or cautions or precautions uh, from his own government, he's not going to get them. He's a dictator. Uh, so you don't get people around you counseling you uh, that say anything other than you want to hear. That that was true with Saddam. That is true with Assad and Syria. It's true with Kim Jong-un. Uh, he's not going to have the people that would provide him caution uh, because they they're already removed, or they've lost their lives, or they've been deported, or whatever.
0: Yeah, we all know what happens uh, if someone does speak up to a guy like Poon. It doesn't end well for people, so there's there's no surprise that people are staying quiet. Congressman Steve Russell, uh, thank you so much for for providing such great insight tonight.
5: Brett, my pleasure.
0: Okay, still ahead tonight, Vladimir Putin does not seem to be losing sleep over his cronies losing their mega yachts. But what if he actually lost his own? How would you like to lose your gold-plated toilet fixtures and swimming pool that converts into a dance floor, your judo gym and helipads and private onboard hospital, a peek inside his yacht and the politics that go along with it? That's coming up when we come back. Welcome back. At this point, it would be quicker for me to list the Russian billionaires' mega yachts that have not been seized by the West. Here's one, the Scheherazade. It's been docked in Italy all winter under an incredible degree of secre- secrecy and security. You can't exactly hide something that's 460 feet long, but the crew has been doing their best. And speaking of the crew, evidence has come to light that many, if not all, are Russian and not only Russian, but members of Russian intelligence. In some cases, the same Russian intelligence members known to be guards and personal staff. Wait for it. I bet you can guess. ...for Vladimir Putin, and apparently they can slip away a lot easier than a 460-foot yacht that is undergoing repairs. The Daily Mail reports the entire Russian crew of the super-secret mystery yacht disappeared within the past week... ...and was replaced mysteriously by a British crew. This while Italian authorities press their investigation into the Scheherazade's ownership. And before you ask, it's true... Vladimir Putin himself is on the EU and American-sanctioned lists. You might also wonder what kind of yacht Vladimir Putin would build for himself. And the answer is, as you guessed it, extreme. The Scheherazade is thought to be worth almost a billion dollars, with toilet paper holders made of gold and a dance floor that converts to a swimming pool. There's also a hospital, two helipads, big enough for military hospitals, I'm sorry, military helicopters, and an air defense system that is capable of shooting down drones. And by the way, if this really is Vladimir Putin's floating palace, it's not his only one. An older, somewhat less extreme yacht called The Graceful is safely back in Russia, having sailed out of port in Germany just two weeks before the Ukraine invasion. Coincidence? After a, ba- a break, would Putin give up anything to a Western power without a fight? Why did the U.S. choose not to sanction a Putin crony whose own yachts were right in our own backyard? We've got a panel of experts. It's coming up right after this. We are talking mega yachts and Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Putin's mega yachts. Joining me now are Ag- Alex Finley, a former CIA officer and expert on Russian intelligence and disinformation. And Alex Jimenez is known as the yacht guy. His Instagram and Facebook pages give daily updates on the world's finest yachts. Okay, I want to start with you, um, Alex Jimenez. If you don't mind, I might call you the yacht guy. That's how I know you uh, on Instagram. We were talking about the uh, Scheherazade, this yacht. Uh, that that is known to be Putin's. No one's proven it yet. What do you think? Do you think this really uh, belongs to Putin?
3: Well, it's funny you should ask. Um, since I've mentioned that a bunch of sources of mine have reached out to me and said, hey, man, it's definitely not Putin's yacht. Um, people I'm close to um, said that it isn't. Um, the media might say it is, but according to people that I know and I'm close to, it is not.
0: But but you know Alex, um, they've uh, they've got missile systems that, that that you know can shoot down drones, and they've got uh, helipads um, like for for military aircraft to be able to land. Uh, I mean, w- do normal people have have a boat like that? Have a yacht like that?
3: Well, a lot of that stuff is speculation, right? You 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 they build up these old sci-fi you know spy novel. Yachts and, and don't get me wrong, a lot of these yachts are very secure. They have a lot of these securities in place, right, to uh, help take down drones or, or whatever it is. But um, for the most part, you got to remember they're going into sovereign nations. So there's a lot of things they're not allowed to have. So missile defense systems might be one of those things that a sovereign nation might not allow these yachts to go carry. And you remember, they, they travel the world. So imagine Shaharazad or even any big major yacht coming to the Bahamas with... Um, missile defense systems on them, might uh, set up a few people off, set up some red flags.
0: Very interesting. Alex Finley, I want to bring you into the conversation, and I want to put up a picture because this just sort of blew my mind today. This is a picture from 2010 uh, of Vladimir Putin with his then wife on a very modest looking couch in a very modest looking living room. You see it right there with even a big non-flat screen TV. I mean, this is obviously the sort of image, um, Alex Finley, that Putin is trying to portray, but then we hear about these yachts, and even if this one we were just talking about isn't his, we know he's had other yachts in the past and he was just wearing this $15,000 jacket uh, when, when he was talking to the country a couple of days ago. I mean, do the Russians really buy that, that that's his living room uh, and that he's really just this modest guy making $70,000 a year?
1: Well, I think you need to keep in mind that, yes, he, he controls the narrative and all of the information systems within Russia. So much of what he does is actually for his domestic audience. It's done in a way to maintain his power, maintain his leverage over the people, and to, and to set the narrative. So he has gone out of his way with his state-controlled media to create that image of himself and uh, we have to keep in mind, not all of this information that we get gets back inside of Russia.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, because we see a lot. But obviously, uh, many Russians are just seeing pictures like that, where he's sitting on, on that couch in that modest looking house. A- Alex Finley, if they actually did seize Putin's yachts, um, and, and he apparently loves, the- loves these things and loves luxury items, do you think that could really make a difference in the war?
1: I don't think seizing any one yacht or even two yachts will make a difference. But I do think that it's part of a much bigger strategy, uh, which I think is what uh, officials here in the West are, are aiming for. The idea behind sanctions, I think, is twofold. One is to put some pressure on people who are close to Putin, who can get near him, people who have his ear and can get into the same room with him, and to get them to put some pressure on Putin or to get them to organize in some way to uh, remove Putin from office. The other side of the sanctions we have to remember is that these people and these assets are Putin's wallet. This is where he holds his money. This is how he launders his money. This is how he gets the money out of Russia. And so part of the strategy is to put pressure on all of those different points going after these assets, not just the yachts, but also real estate and planes and bank accounts is one part of that strategy of putting that pressure.
0: Alex Jimenez, one thing that I've wondered about uh, over the last couple of weeks with so many people talking about these Russian yachts is the crew uh, and I've heard a lot of the crew uh, some of them are even American on some of these boats and there were just some reports today on one of the boats uh, that they weren't even allowed to gas up they weren't allowed to get fuel, they didn't have supplies and that some of the crew members were even having to fish off of the yacht for food uh, what are you hearing about the status of, of the crew on these boats right now?
3: Well these these really big yachts are set up to go out for months at a time and um and they and, and the fuel and and food that can support them for like I said for months at a time now if they're out there fishing it's probably for sport to keep them from being bored um if they're out of food my guess would be that um even even people who are having sanctions against them are not going to be denied food I mean I'm not I'm not sure but um I'm pretty sure they're taken care of on those boats, they've got plenty to eat.
0: And Alex, you are known as the yacht guy, I know you almost like track these yachts all over the world for sport. Um, we reported last week that the tracking systems on, on a couple of the yachts were actually turned off to try to avoid uh, possibly being, you know, sanctioned and that sort of thing. Are you seeing more of that? Is it harder to track?
3: Well, you, you see it all the time. Um, not all the time. I'm sorry, I'm mistaking. But uh, recently, with what's going on, um, it has been in the media that some of them have been turning off their tracking systems, and because of the sanctions and everything, um, you got to remember that does cause some uh, safety issues, right? If you're moving along, and then there's other yachts that are paying attention to ships in the area, they're looking at that and using that as a safety precaution to make sure they don't run into anything at night during the day. So turning them off could be a big safety hazard. Um, whether they're doing it or not on purpose, who knows? Maybe they're dropping off. But my guess is they're probably turning them off to uh, avoid
0: being tracked. And Alex Finley, it's interesting. There is sort of this obsession um, with these oligarchs' yachts. People are tracking them. People are looking at photos of them. Uh, the yachts that have been seized, some of these rich men uh, are close with Putin. Um, do you think they could get in his ear and actually have an impact? Or at this point, is he just sort of doubling down uh, and not listening to anyone, in your opinion?
1: Well, we're hearing mixed reports out of Russia on that um, we hope that they can, That's, as I stated earlier, that's part of the strategy, I think, behind the sanctions. Putin has become increasingly isolated, uh, particularly with COVID, he's seen very few people in person over the past number of years. Um, even now, when he called a number of his uh, uh, oligarchs back to discuss the invasion, uh, my understanding is that was not done in person, it was done through a, a video conference. So he is increasingly isolated. But, again, the idea is that these are people who have his ear and who hopefully can get some kind of information to him and, and uh, make it clear to him that there, there need to be some other options. Well,
0: I guess we'll, we'll wait and see. We'll have to see if it works. We all hope it works. Alex Finley and Alex Jimenez, the yacht guy, uh, thank you so much to both of you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, coming up next, $4.23 a gallon. That's the national average for gas today, which means that if your car holds 15 gallons, it's costing you over 60 bucks to fill up. Oof, ouch, but one man has a million dollar idea as to how to ease the burden. Basically, he is giving away a million dollars in gas. The angel at the pump joins us next. It took a global pandemic for Uncle Sam to cough up stimulus checks to help ease the burden on American families. Now there's talk on Capitol Hill of payments from the federal government to American families to help ease the pain of the pump. Yes, gas prices have soared so high that three congresspersons, representatives Mike Thompson of California, John Larson of Connecticut, and Lauren Underwood of Illinois, have proposed the Gas Rebate Act, which would send as much as 300 bucks a month to families with at least two children as long as the national average for gas remains above $4 a gallon. But now we have to wait for the bill to be introduced, go to committee, debated, voted on, referred to the Senate. You know, it goes on and on, and it'll take a lot of time. But in the meantime, Chicago entrepreneur Willie Wilson is taking charge. Tomorrow morning, thousands of cars around Chicago will get in line for $50 worth of gas, and Willie is picking up the bill for, for all of them until he spends a million bucks. So move over, Hans and Franz. Entrepreneur Willie Wilson is here to pump you up, and Willie joins us now. I mean, I was following this so closely um, last week when you gave away two hundred thousand dollars in gas. Now you're you're taking it to a million dollars, Willie. You, you do realize um, that you're a million dollars richer now than you'll be this time tomorrow night, right?
6: Well, I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I believe so. I believe so. Tomorrow night I'll be less than one
0: million. You know. I, I listen, I admire what you 're doing because people are are feeling it right now. Uh, people are having a rough time, uh, and I saw the lines last week when you did the two hundred thousand. How did you get mm-hmm. this idea?
6: Well, basically, people that asking me for money to get to work or to take the kid to a daycare center uh, i didn 't pay much attention to it at that particular time, but one day I went to a service station it took me about fifty to 60 or $75 to fill up my tank. And it went two or three days later, it took about $150 to fill up my tank. And that was a shocker to me. Then I thought about the people that had been asking me to give them some dollars. So I said, well, you know what? I need to do something versus just talk and about high gas prices. And so we always been helping. So we just came up and in a couple of days, we had did it. Last in two days, we did the $200,000. Uh, and then tomorrow we're doing, of course, the uh, $1 million. I felt a little bad about it because $200,000 when I got there, I said it just was not enough because some people didn't get a chance to get gas. And I had, a, you know, some money laying around that I didn't have to invest. And so I said it'd be better to invest this into the people themselves to help them get to work and, and kind of like save some of their livelihood. And so, so that's, that's how that and whole that thing you- came
0: about. You say the money is laying around. I want to point out, and this is what I love about you, Willie, that you are self-made. You, people don't, who don't know your story, you were literally flipping burgers at McDonald's, worked your way up to become a manager, bought a couple of franchises, and now you're a very rich man. I'm curious, I mean, do you actually go around to all of these gas stations and give them the money up front? How does it actually work behind the scenes?
6: Well, no, what we do, we call in all the gas station owners, and we write a check out to them and we give it to them that way. Like tomorrow, when everything is over with tomorrow around about 10, 30, 11 o'clock, uh, we have all the people participated, active 48 now, so they'll come and then we'll give them check tomorrow around about 10, 11 o'clock um, and that's what we'll do and they'll give us a receipt to show that they pumped that amount of uh, gasoline.
0: And I know, Willie, no good deed goes unpunished, and there were some people frustrated last week. I mean, there is a bit of gridlock in the city when you do this, and that was just 200,000. Um, I mean, surely, you're ex- I mean, there's going to be a lot of traffic tomorrow. There's going to be some frustrated people over all this.
6: Well, I, look, we're working with the Chicago Police Department, Cook County Police as well. Here's how I look at this whole thing. When people go to a football game, the trap is there. Nobody says anything. People go to Grand Park in Chicago, hundreds of thousands of people, they're drinking and on all kind of stuff. Nobody says nothing. Hold on A Bulls game, basketball game. Nobody says nothing. This is something that we're doing here to help people, you know, to get to work and save their livelihood. So those people who complain, uh, I don't I can't yet figure that out. Why would you complain? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm helping. And listen, Chicago Willie, is just, is, I hear just, you. My home. You know, so I'm. And I think you're the man, right Willie.
0: Listen, I think you're the man. I'll be watching closely tomorrow uh, when all this goes down. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Willie.
6: Thank, thank you.
0: Welcome back. Before we go, Ashley spoke with Morning Joe co-host Mika Brzezinski on Ashley's mentorship series, Rising Tide, and she had this to say about how the refugee crisis. It's home for her.
1: My brother has just become ambassador to Poland, and he is dealing with the refugee crisis. He goes to the border a couple times a week, and he's dealing with 3.5 million new uh, visitors to his country. Um, and he's in the middle of this, so I kind of deal with it on a very deeply personal level, worried about my family and thinking about my father's legacy.
0: Now I want to send it over to Marty Hughes and Leland Vittert uh, for their special report as they continue to cover the war in Ukraine.
3: Brian, great show. Good to see you. Thank you very much.